0: Well this evening we will be in First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. And we'll begin with verse twenty three. One of the constant temptations that plagues our forward spiritual progress is the idea that God could possibly lose in this battle that we're in, that Satan could actually win that uh, this spiritual battle that you and I are involved in every day is going to end in defeat. That's a common temptation that comes up, a common um, thought that plagues our minds. But I'm here to tell you this evening on the authority of God's Word that this spiritual war in which you're fighting will be won by God. And the individual battle that you face against Satan is guaranteed to turn out in victory if you are a child of Christ. It may not be pretty along the way. It will, it will not be without its setbacks and occasional doubts. But we need to keep our eyes on the prize, don't we? We must remember that God has promised to win the battle and the war and the proof that He can and will is the, rec- the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Christ has been resurrected, we can get, be guaranteed, we are guaranteed that we, our bodies also will be resurrected and will, will be glorified. God will win. We will win now that we are a child of God. And uh, this passage shows the hope that we have in this final victory. And the hope that we have is, doesn't rest in our ability but it rests in God and his power. Look beginning in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 with verse 23. We'll read to the end of the chapter. 1st Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. This is the word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you we're going to focus on verses 23 and 24 but we don't want to we don't want to miss the commands that are put there at the end of the book as well but in verses 23 and 24 we see that final sanctification is guaranteed by God final sanctification is guaranteed by God now i need to explain that there are three types of sanctification in the life of a believer there is initial sanctification and with that uh, adjective, you can understand where that happens. Initial sanctification, initial uh, change being called out of being separated from the world happens when? At salvation. That's initial sanctification. And what I'm saying is that final salvation is guaranteed by God for those who have been initially sanctified. So that happens when? Okay, at, the, at the resurrection, at the glorification of our bodies at the rapture of Jesus Christ. Between that time, we have a period that's known as progressive sanctification. A time where we move from where we were to where we will be. Okay, a very profound statement, I know, but it's basically a progressive move from ungodliness and unrighteousness to continually growing in righteousness and godliness and understanding God more, following Him more closely and so on. And this is a fitting way for Paul to end his letter here in 1 Thessalonians because throughout the letter he has been saying that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. In every chapter he says the Lord is coming. Be prepared for the Lord's coming. Our responsibility because He is coming is to be prepared. And the way that we prepare ourselves is that we sanctify ourselves. Now you recognize that God's ultimately the one who drives that sanctification, but, but there's, He also does it through means. And the means by which we are sanctified is by us responding to God in holiness, in obedience. And so I say, in order to prepare ourselves for the Lord's coming, we must sanctify ourselves. And this is what Paul's been saying throughout the book. In verse, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, we were called out of the world. And so we must live differently from the world. In chapter 3, he talks about the fact that we must expect persecution to come. And and we must stand up under it. We must endure it. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, he talks about taking joy in the Lord's coming. Be encouraged because of the coming of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 18. And then after he talks about the coming of the Lord in chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, for believers, it is not something to dread, but rather it's something to look forward to. And so encourage one another with these words. And so while we have all these commands kind of piling up throughout the letter, we may get weighed down by the amount of responsibility that we have. And so Paul ends fittingly with these couple of verses in verses 23 and 24 that we must recognize that that sanctification that we're required to take part in is ultimately guaranteed by God. That it is God who sanctifies. It's God who Grows us in godliness, who transforms us. It's God. So let's see that in verses 23 and 24. Sanctification is done by God. Now, the exhortations in this book begin in chapter 4. And, you know, we we could look at all of those. You know, God's will is for your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality and that you should learn how to possess your own body, not like the Gentiles who have. You know, who have no um, uh, restrictions or they have no self control. And, you know, there's all these commands that pile up. And so Paul here is giving them hope in their sanctification that God is going to accomplish this in them. Notice the source of our sanctification in verse 23 Now may the God of peace, the God of peace, think about that for a minute. Doesn't your spiritual life feel like a huge battle? Doesn't your Christian life feel more like a raging ocean than a still lake? It doesn't feel like we have peace at times, does it it doesn't and we, and and we don't have the peace um, especially when sin keeps rearing its ugly head in our lives. We keep responding to sin and following after the sin that we don't want to do, but we end up doing it doesn't feel like we're at peace, but here's what Paul wants us to remember at the conclusion of his letter. is We don't need to focus on those things. Yes, we need to turn from that sin, but despite how you feel, you must not forget that you are at peace with God and that God is at peace with you. He is the God of peace. So that the, the peace... The unrest that you feel now is not unrest between you and God. It's between you and your sin. You see, God is on your side. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He is the God of peace. He's the One who's bringing you to a place of ultimate peace when all of sin will be removed and you'll be able to enjoy God's presence forevermore. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 11. Verse 11. Because in this verse it says, "...May the God of peace Himself..." That's what 5.23 says. "...May the God of peace Himself..." God does it Himself. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Because we see here the same idea. 3.11 says, "...Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase..." "...the idea of sanctification..." May He cause you to increase and abound in love with one, uh, for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So really, before the section where Paul gives out all the commands, the responsibilities for one and following, he starts with the same idea that he ends with. May the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, direct your hearts to love one another, to do what is right. It is God who is doing the work. Turn back to chapter 5 and think about this statement that, that is there in verse 23. May the God of peace Himself. Isn't this great? He doesn't send a very mature human to help sanctify you. He doesn't send a holy angel. He could do that. But it is God Himself who's working in you to sanctify, to change you, to grow you in godliness. It's just like the rapture. Who is it that comes for the rapture? It's not one of God's representatives. not one of Christ's representatives. It is the Lord Himself who will come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain We'll be caught up together with them in the Lord, and so we will ever be with the Lord. It is the Lord Himself who comes, and it is the God it is God whom, Himself who changes you. He doesn't send a representative, it's too important for your life to change. Well, how does he do that? How does God Himself sanctify us? Obviously, we know He does that through His Spirit. His Spirit lives within us. As a Christian, you have the, the greatest. Possession that you possibly can. That is the Spirit who is the pledge, the guarantee of your final sanctification. He's a down payment that you will receive those final blessings. Christian, you may think that you're doing all the work in your growth in godliness. And that you're the one who's initiating your relationship with God. It feels like when you don't turn to God in your Christian life, It feels like things go bad, but you know, that that God doesn't care. He's not going after you. And it feels like that every time you take steps of growth, it's because of you. But Paul wants us to know that God is behind it all. That every step of faith we take in the Christian life toward God is a step that was ultimately initiated by God and directed by His Spirit in connection with His Word. Now it's true that we are instruments of God's grace and that we have a responsibility to work and cultivate growth in our life, but here's what we need to understand. We need to draw from this text. It is that God is the One who sanctifies us. That's what that word means. To change us. It's God. It's the work of God. James Grant, a commentator, puts it this way. He says, If we don't grasp, that God is the One who sanctifies, then our whole Christian life will be filled with frustration. Are you frustrated as a Christian? Are you frustrated with where things are going or where things are not going? Then perhaps you don't understand that it is God who is the One who sanctifies. We need to understand this. Notice the outcome of God's sanctifying you it is, it is uh, final sanctification. We see this in three phrases. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. It is final. It is complete. Full. This is talking about the guaranteed finished product. Right now, we are, a, are still a lump of clay. We are a work in progress. But one day, we will be complete he will sanctify you entirely. That's the final sanctification I was talking about earlier. When we will finally and fully be changed, never to turn away from God again, never to fall into sin again because we will be with Him. Our bodies, our minds will have been changed. The second phrase that shows that this is final, it's guaranteed, is in the next um, is in the, the next phrase in verse 23. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, notice the word there, complete. Okay, and notice what Paul is saying here. Not just your spirit and soul, that is your immaterial person, Okay, not just your immaterial person that will be sanctified complete or or preserved complete, but it is your body as well. Many people think that the body is, is the bad part of us. You know, and once we die, we finally get rid of that bad part. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And you're right. Our body is cursed, but so is our soul. It is it is plagued by sin. And until God does the supernatural work of rejoining our bodies with our spirit, we will not be preserved complete. But here's what the text says. If you are a Christian, your body soul, and spirit, every part of you will be preserved complete. It will be rejoined to a place where you will have a perfect body, a perfect soul. You'll be able to share in the presence of God forevermore. Further, he says, may your soul, spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame. This is the third way we see that this is final and guaranteed. It's without blame. You may feel inadequate on your own. And that even with God's help, you feel inadequate. But God promises to present you on the day of Jesus Christ without blame. That you can stand before Christ not because of what you have done yourself, but because of what God has done in you. As a result of the powerful work of the Spirit that came when you came to Christ. When Christ changed you because of the offer of salvation that He provided through His death. Notice the timing of our final sanctification at the end of verse 23. It is at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 says that we can be confident of this very thing, that He who started a work in you, that's the initial sanctification, the positional sanctification, He who started that will... Complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be done. It's going to be complete. It's guaranteed to happen. Why do we know that it's guaranteed? Why are we so confident that we have been changed, we are being changed, and that we will finally be changed? We won't turn away. Why can we be sure of that? And the answer comes in verse 24. Verse 24 is this. Faithful is He who calls you and He, God, also will bring it to pass. Faithful is He who calls you. The reason we can bank on our own final sanctification is not because of our spiritual prowess. Right? Because we are spiritual elites. No, it's because God is faithful. Faithful. Have you ever seen God fail to follow through on what He said He would do? Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not make it good? What you ought to hear tonight is that God has said it. That He will finally change you if you have been changed. That is, if Christ has saved you through His death, provided and provided an offer of salvation, and you've responded in repentance and faith, then you can be sure that God has promised that He will finally change you. He will finally sanctify you. He will preserve you complete. Present you on the day of Jesus Christ without blame. Why? Because faithful is He who calls you. And He will... Bring it to pass. Everyone that God calls in an effectual way will not be lost. So all the things that you think are threatening your spiritual life, all the things that make you sense that there is a spiritual war going on, that you think that may keep you from being sanctified fully are not threats to God. Because He is God and He is faithful. He rules the world. And He can stay true to His promises and He will. There's great confidence and rest in knowing that God has our salvation under control. Isn't there? That it is God who is faithful. And that when we have these doubts that come and plague our minds and say, you're not good enough. You need to do more. And we don't turn back to all the things that we have done. We turn to God and say, God, You are faithful despite my my faithlessness. Look at the next phrase. in Verse 24, And He also will bring it to pass. Not He might bring it to pass. He could if things turn out okay. He will bring it to pass. And again, God hasn't failed in any of His promises. So why would He fail in your life? Faithful is He who called you and He also will bring it to pass. What God has intended to carry out will be carried out. There's no question about it. And so if you have seen the work of God in your life, that God has changed you, you can be sure that God will complete it. Because He is faithful. Salvation, growth in godliness, This progressive sanctification, this progressive growth that we're going on in the Christian life is ultimately a result of God's faithfulness, God's power, God's work in you. So when you do doubt, turn to God. Remember His faithfulness. Remember how He has always been true to His promises. So Paul encourages them in this, them in this way, and I think it's a helpful way to end a letter that's filled with exhortations and commands and responsibilities on the part of Christians, because we can feel weighted down like this is all us and we can't do it. Paul says, "You know what? It's God. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure," he says in Philippians two. So he finishes with a few more exhortations, as he often does, before he gives his final prayer with. Prayer wish, and we see this in verses 25 to 27. First, he gives a plea for prayer in verse 25. A plea for prayer. He says simply, "Brethren or Christians, pray for us." In verse 18, Paul commended that he he commanded us as believers to pray how often, continually or without ceasing. Right? That's how, what the text does. But the idea, you're right, is continually. And here, Paul gives them something to pray about. Pray for us. And this shows the humility of Paul that he was humble enough to ask other people to pray for God on His behalf. Paul knew how easy it was for him to turn astray personally. And he knew that it was God who was behind the change and the growth that, he needed, to, that needed to be affected in him. And he knew, also knew the temptation of trying to change the Gospel when he spoke about it. To change it to fit the audience. So that he can appease them and not receive persecution. He knew that, that sense that we all have. But, but because he saw the Gospel as most important, he asked them simply to pray for Him. Pray for Him and all the other believers that are speaking on behalf of God's name. Should we not do the same? Should we not be humble enough to ask other people to pray for us? Specifically, that the work of God would go forward in our lives as we respond to God's call. Then in verse 26, He gives a command to kiss. command is kiss. He says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, it's hard to know what this kiss is, and but in the ancient Near East, kisses were given to... A superior, so I would give one to my boss, for example, if I lived during that time, I would kiss him on the hand or the knee or on the foot. And if it were a friend of mine, I would kiss him on the cheek. And some people suggest that in the early church that this holy kiss that Paul is talking about was only done between men, that is, men were kissing men and women were kissing men, or women were kissing women in a in a holy way. But, as you can imagine, as the church started to change and deteriorate doctrinally and practically, then all sorts of abuses started to arise as a result of people trying to obey this command, the holy kiss. And the result as a result of these abuses, the church was falling into a bad light into disfavor with the watching public, as they're seeing this, what kind of weird, bizarre, Things are they doing over there? But what I want you to see here in verse 26 is that this is a holy kiss. So this limits the type of kiss that can be given, that Paul is commanded to be given in this text. One scholar, D. Edmund Hebert, puts it this way, "...the carrying out of this directive among believers today should be in a form that is acceptable to the culture of the community." So it should be carried out in such a way that would be in keeping with our culture since we live in our culture. We don't live in someone else's culture. We don't live in Paul's culture. We need to carry this out in such a way that would be appropriate in our culture. In other words, if in our culture, kissing is not culturally acceptable outside of the marriage or outside extended family relationships, then it shouldn't be done within the church. Instead, church members should have a way to express a visible and concrete love for one another. That's the idea behind the command, that you ought to express love for one another. Maybe that's a hug in our culture. Would that be culturally acceptable to give someone a hug to show that you care for them? Or maybe a two-handed handshake or a pat on the back Let's think about it this way. What kind of holy greeting have you received from somebody within the context of a church that made you feel really special? What kind of greeting was that? And so maybe that's the way that you greet other people, to show them that you care. Okay, can I give an example without turning this into a law for our church? My sister-in-law's dad is a Christian man. His name is Tom. And he and I used to attend the same church along with his family, my family. Every time he would greet me, he would grab my hand, both hands, both of his hands, one of my hands. And he would look me directly in the eye as if I was the most important person in the entire room. That's a Christian greeting. And, you know, still when I see him today, he still does that to me. He's a godly man, and, and this was his way to express his love to people. Okay? And that's, I think, a culturally acceptable way. Now, if we live in a different culture, then obviously we can, we, we're going to have to determine what that means in that culture. Okay? You know in Uruguay that they kiss on the cheek. Everybody. Man to man, man to woman, woman to woman. That they kiss each other on the cheek. And so in that culture, that may be very appropriate a very appropriate application of this command to greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. It seems to me that, that this command to greet believers in this way was especially important in their church because of the makeup of their church. Think about what their church would have looked like in a time where Jews and Gentiles were generally... Hostile toward one another. Now they're coming together, covenanting themselves together in one body, and Paul saying, greet each other with a holy kiss. Okay, use the form in our culture of of love that's expressed to people in a godly way, and do that to those. Okay, can I say dirty Gentiles? That's how the Jews would have saw them, and. You Gentiles, you do those, do that kind of greeting, make that kind of greeting to these pompous Jews. That's how they would have seen the Jews. So this would have been especially important, but I don't think the command is any less important for us today. We ought to greet each other with love. Why not? Right? Because of all the love that's been shown to us through Christ, why should we not greet one another with such love? So an expression of our love for one another should be displayed in our greeting. And then verse 27 a demand to pass on pass on the letter. A demand to pass on his letter. Verse 27 I I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. I adjure you. This is like something you would hear in a courtroom. I charge you under oath that you have this letter read to other churches. He wasn't saying you know, if you get around to it, if you happen to see these people, you might want to just pass this on to them, let them see it. Now, Paul had what theologians call a canonical self consciousness. Okay, so break that down to canonical, that is the canon. He recognized, the apostles recognized that they were writing part of the canon of Scripture, part of the the sixty six books of Scripture. Scripture that we now have. They understood that. They had a self-consciousness. They knew that what they were writing was actually the very words of God. And that means that Paul knew that this specific letter, this specific letter along with several others, but not every letter that he wrote was actually from God, that it was actually the Holy Spirit uh, inscripturating words through the Apostle. And so he was adamant, because this is the Word of God, because this letter will be preserved for ages to come, you need to make sure other churches read this and obey it. Paul concludes with a prayer wish in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Notice what he wishes for them. Okay, I mention this a lot, but we I, I don't think we should miss the, the main point of why Paul prays for people. He doesn't pray that they will grow in number or that they will become financially prosperous or that they will you know be liked by everybody in the community but what that the grace of God would be with them. This is a standard benediction of Paul that he uses throughout his letters uh, particularly at the end of his letters. He knew that you know when someone comes to Christ they were in need of grace, right? Ephesians chapter 2, like we saw this morning, they were in need of grace. But we don't stop needing grace when we come to Christ, do we? But may the grace of God be continually poured out upon you so you can obey these commands. We are constantly in need of God's grace. Let me address two potential questions that may have come up in your mind when we looked at verses 23 and 24. Two potential questions. Number one, can believers be fully sanctified in this life? Well, in other words, why do we have to wait for the next life? Think about these commands with me, matthew five forty eight Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Same idea as what we talked about tonight. Be complete, be preserved, complete, as your heavenly Father is complete, perfect, sinless. First John three: six. No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who abides in Christ sins. So here, here's the question that we have to ask and answer. Can we, as believers, be fully sanctified in this life where we come from a place of you know, godlessness, turning away from God to being saved, and then maybe for a while we are wallowing still a little bit in our sin, and then we finally move to a place where we are fully sanctified? No longer to have sin plague us and on a higher spiritual level than other people. Is that possible in this lifetime? Some people say that if God has given us a command to be sinless, like He does in Matthew 5, be perfect as your Father is perfect, or 1 John 3, no one who bides in Him sins. That if God gives us a command, then He has to give us the ability to obey those commands. But is that really true? Has God always given us the ability to obey all of His commands? Think about the Old Testament believer. Was He able to keep the whole law perfectly? Even after He was converted, David? These prophets, were they able to keep the whole law perfectly? No, and that was part of the point of the law, wasn't it? To show them that they couldn't do it. That they needed someone else to come and satisfy the law, to obey the law fully. The truth is that when God gives us a command, He doesn't always give us the the ability to fully obey them. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, If you say you have no sin as a believer, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. So, while He does say that everyone who um, is born of God does not continually sin, he also says, if you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And so that's really the point of the earlier verse that I mentioned. No one who abides in Christ sins. The idea is no one who abides in Christ continually goes on sinning. That's what how we were before we came to Christ. We continued in sin, we practiced it, we loved it. We jumped into sin feet first. But but here we as Christians we no longer do that. We no longer continually go on sinning. Okay, we're we're constantly turning from that sin, but but we cannot arrive spiritually in this lifetime. That is, get to a place of sinless perfection. If you have and you have no more room to be sanctified, okay, then then you are deceiving yourself. John says because if you are not growing. If you're not being changed, if you're not continually eliminating sin from your life, then perhaps you're not a Christian at all. You're not living spiritually. Because spiritual life means spiritual transformation. It's continual changing of ourselves from one level of godliness to the next. But in this lifetime, Paul recognized this. Remember, he started out by saying in some of his early letters, I am the least of all the apostles. And then he would say later, I am the least of all saints. And by the time he got to his prison epistles, he would write, I am the least of all creatures. There's no one who's worse than worse sinner than I am. How could Paul say that? If you could get to a place of spiritual perfection in this lifetime, how could Paul say something like that? So the point of the prayer wish here in verse 23 is that yes, it should be our goal to be in this lifetime fully sanctified while at the same time recognizing that it can't happen in this lifetime. Okay, So we keep working, progressing in, the life, in our life as Christians but recognizing that it can't ultimately happen until we get to the next life. So believers cannot be fully sanctified in this life. The answer to that question is no. Number two. If God does the sanctifying, then why should I do anything? If God is the one who's behind my sanctification, why don't I just relax? Okay, If God wants to change me, He's going to zap me, right? He's going to zap me into performance. But the answer to that question is that we must, as believers, keep in mind, that yes, God does do the sanctifying. He's ultimately behind every good work that we do, and He gets all the credit for every good work that we do. But our sanctification, our growth in godliness, takes place through means. Okay, That God actually uses means, just like He brings people to Christ through prayer. Okay, We understand that God is in control of all things, and that He will bring whomever He pleases to, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we also understand that He does that through the people's prayers, right? And so we pray for people. You know, God knows our requests before we ask them, doesn't He? And He is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases, so it's not like we're changing Him in a sense. Okay, and the same thing is true about our spiritual life. We know that God is the one who ultimately does the work, but God works through means. And do you know what means those are? It is simple... Obedience. Trusting God that what He says is best and, and that His Word is true and then following Him in obedience. That's the, that's the work that we are responsible for. But what we ought to recognize is when we do take those steps of obedience, it's ultimately God who's doing the work. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the great truth of this passage that says, that You are faithful who call us and that You will bring our entire sanctification to pass. Our final sanctification will happen because You are faithful. Lord, help us not to fix our eyes on our own works, on the things of this earth that grow strangely dim because we are looking into the light of Your glorious face. May we... May we continually turn to You and not fear that we will be finally lost, but that we will be sanctified because You have sanctified us. You have done the work in us to bring us to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if You have, then You guarantee that we will have final victory. That the battle will be won. And so we are like a soldier in the field who already knows the outcome. It's only a matter of time, before the enemy is fully defeated, that you, as the commander of our army, have Satan and his hosts of armies on, on their heels, and then it's only a matter of time before the final blow is given, when Satan is put in a, into the abyss for a thousand years and then finally and fully condemned to an eternal lake of fire. Thankful that You have the final victory. And we know that You do because You resurrected Jesus. You raised Him from the dead. And because You have power over death, You have power over sin. And it cannot have a final hold on us. It cannot finally turn us away. It can only nip at our heels. It can only set us back temporarily, but not permanently. And so we trust in You, God. We trust in Your faithfulness to bring to pass what You've promised in our lives. May You help us to rest in that hope. But may it not lead us to a place of passivity where we stop working, where we stop seeking to produce good works through the power of the Spirit. May it help us to, to be more engaged in the battle, more alert, ready to fight on Your behalf. Strengthen us for the task that we have. Even this week, Lord, there will be setbacks. There will be temptations. There will be thoughts of wanting to give up in the race. Bring us back onto the right pathway. And may we trust in You and follow You in love and obedience. And may we also obey these other commands to greet one another with love and to pray for one another, and to have other people read the scriptures that have been preserved for us. May we see the, the great uh value resource that we have in this word that you've preserved for us. May our life as Christians be, be uh ever changing and ever helping those that are in this community of believers, may help us to see how we can strengthen one another for the task of fighting in this battle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.